Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm talking about the gut and hormone connection with my guest Brie Weiselman, who is a medical director of Brie Weiselman Integrated Health, a clinic of integrated practitioners in Santa Cruz, California. Prior to founding the clinic, she spent several years specializing in the integrated treatment of infertility and subfertility at IVF centers and fertility practices in the San Francisco Bay Area and also in a local clinic specialising in the integrative treatment of hepatitis C. Her post-degree education in functional medicine has been through the Kalish Institute and the Institute for Functional Medicine. She keeps up to date with the latest discoveries and innovations by attending various continuing education seminars with some of the brightest minds in functional medicine, such as Datis Karazian, Ben Lynch and Dr. Dale Bredesen as well as many others. She's also a certified Pilates and bar instructor and a certified life coach. So welcome Bree to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I know we just had a a long chat before we even hit record. So I know that we have a lot of similarities and parts of our health journey and what we've struggled with also sound pretty similar. So could you start off by telling us like what you've gone through? Because I know it started off pretty young for you. All right. So basically, my entry into the world was a bit rough. I had, you know, a emergency birth and, of course, all the antibiotics and things that I was exposed to to go with it. Uh, luckily, I was breastfed. So of course, that helped to some extent. But basically, what wound up happening was I had, um, in combination with, you know, genetic vulnerability, developed childhood ectopic diseases. So uh, severe asthma, mainly was what that looked like, but some eczema and allergies to go with it. And um, so that led to a childhood full of a ton of medications to help keep me alive and a bunch of hospitalizations and whatnot. So I'm quite grateful that I'm here. Um, But all those meds had an influence on my system. And um, along the way uh, in my um, teens, I also had some eating disorders and struggled with some anxiety and depression. And... um, you know, eventually figured out that I had what we now know as PCOS. But at the time, uh, really, there was nobody to kind of guide me or even let me know that there was a syndrome that was related to what I was experiencing, which was basically, you know, getting my period quite late, and then never knowing when and if it would come again. And then eventually developing the acne for me didn't come until later, actually. Um, But those things were all part of my path along the way. And so largely I was ushered into this world of natural medicine, having felt somewhat failed by the Western medical system, you know, or or recognizing its limitations rather, you know, it kept me alive. But beyond that, when seeking for wellness, it didn't have the answers I was looking for. Um, All the people I went to for help didn't know, you know, what the OS was. I had to figure that diagnosis out on my own. 
recognize that I wasn't a classical textbook case, and then understand, you know, what do we do about that, right? Because it, you and I were talking about it, it's not just about the hormone piece. Yeah, we're missing the boat, most of us, if we do that. So that led me to uh, herbal medicine and nutrition, and then um, getting a degree in acupuncture and Chinese medicine, um, and uh, then on to the functional medicine component. In addition to that, you know, after graduation, um, because they just go so nicely together. I think of functional medicine very much as, you know, Chinese medicine in, in uh, Western language clothing, because uh, Chinese medicine's had a history of 5,000 years, you know, very much parallel to Ayurveda or any of those systems. And then we've basically taken those ideas of, of inextricability of our body systems and applied lab testing to be able to um, look at those. So, and so how's your um, health that's now? kind of how I got to where I was. You know what? I, okay. So, well, candidly, I'm uh, 19 months postpartum. So I, but, but actually I will say that uh, despite the fact that I would love to exercise just a little bit more and have a little bit more time for food prep for myself to eat, you know, like in my ideal way, most of the time, I feel better than I've ever felt in my life. And um, I'll say that, you know, my, uh, my periods are now regular even postpartum and my skin looks pretty good for 42 and not having breakouts and stuff. I'm doing all right. So feeling pretty good, you know, ask me again in maybe like two years. <laughs> if you're watching the video on YouTube, you can attest that the skin is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm Thank you. guessing you've tried like me, you've been a guinea pig, you've experimented with a ton of things over the years for your own health. What do you feel like are maybe the top three to five things that made the biggest difference for you? Bearing in mind, like everyone who's listening, everyone's different, your root causes mm. and what you need to do are probably different than Breeze. Absolutely. Um, well, number one, number one, you know, bottom line for me was uh, finally figuring out that I had to look at the gut to get my hormones balanced. That was just the bottom line, right? Then the second piece for me was actually cyclic bioidentical progesterone, um, which I got to because I was having problems with insomnia, but then tied into the PCOS and actually helped me regulate it. Um, so those two pieces were humongous. And then the third piece I would say is just like over decades, over two and a half decades, um, refining and refining my understanding of nutrition. And by refining, I don't mean constricting. I just mean, um, you know, embracing all the different ways that foods suit me or don't suit me at different times too, recognizing that those will be different at different in life. That's a good point. And I try to bear that in mind as well because what's working for me now and the latest research that's coming out is probably going to be different than what it is in 10 years time or when I'm pregnant or breastfeeding so not being so dogmatic mm -hmm. and allowing change to happen absolutely I mean just briefly like I can bring that real like tangibly home so when I was pregnant I had gestational diabetes and I wasn't shocked about it because even though I ate pretty much a low-carb paleo diet before that I um you know most of the time um, I have, uh, my mom had gestational diabetes and she, when I was in utero, um, we have, you know, diabetes genetics in our family and I am on the PCOS spectrum and therefore I'm aware of insulin sensitivity and resistance. So I actually went almost into a full keto diet during pregnancy and that allowed me to get through with, without the need for medications and to have a really, you know, complete pregnancy and healthy delivery. My baby was fine. I was fine. I felt amazing. Um, however, in the long run, that much fat isn't, uh, or that much saturated fat as I was consuming that was appropriate during pregnancy doesn't really match me 
Um, although a lower carb diet does because I have genetics that make it so that I need higher protein and also that I do better if I limit my saturated fat to like below a pretty low count. And so I have to adapt now that I'm not pregnant. So I can see how the average person listening is like, I'm so confused. Like I heard that fat is really bad. What does and that mean? Some people, yeah, it's, it's confusing <laughs> for all of us, even those of us like in the nutrition world. Oh yeah. Well, the main point just is, I just wanted to back up what you were saying, which is that, the, you know, the diet that's right for me is not going to be the diet that's right for you. And also that the diet that's right for me at one point in my life, when I'm dealing with one thing, um, sometimes I see that when I'm working, you know, with people and even in my own health journey, we get very glued to something that m- helped us make big changes and then think that we need to stick with that ongoing for the rest of our lives. And sometimes that's not always true. So that was, that was yeah. my point. People start to tell like <laughs> their friends just because it's worked for them. They're like, tell the whole world and they go on these Facebook groups and believe that it's like the miracle cure for everyone. And unfortunately that's not always the case. Yeah. And I'm yeah. glad that you mentioned um, gut health. That's like my number one as well. Um, we both specialize in guts and hormone health. People think that that's weird and like they're two separate things, but they are intimately connected so could you talk about how they work both ways so how does the gut influence our hormones and then how does our hormonal health affect our gut and digestion absolutely I mean I think you and I are in agreement that the bottom line is that you can't fix your hormones without fixing the gut and that means even if you don't have gut symptoms because you know candidly I had some very mild symptoms related to gut, but until I fixed, I had to do testing and look deeper and find that I had some H. pylori overgrowth. I also had um, quite a bit of uh, fungal overgrowth, candida, and also two parasites. And so each of those had to be kind of like peeling layers of the onions handled before I was able to really see a shift in my hormone uh, presentation. But that said, if your hormones are out of balance, it can also be really hard to completely heal the gut, right? So there's a bit of that chicken and the egg. So, you know, there's three main ways that I think of when we're talking about gut health, that it can impact hormones. So I'll start from the simplest. So there's, I think of it as, well, actually four. It's constipation uh, as a symptom, absorption, and then inflammation and microbiome. And those are overlapping a bit. But so constipation, quite simply, if you're constipated from any cause, you know, um, it impacts your hormones. Um, of course, you know, all kinds of disorders in the gut, uh, from candida overgrowth to small intestine bacterial overgrowth to um, low enzymes or stomach acid to uh, neurological impacts to your motility. There's lots of reasons someone could be constipated. But essentially, constipation creates hormone imbalances that lead to increased levels of estrogen in most people, just by virtue of the fact that we're not evacuating the bowels. And so the main exit route for our detoxified hormones is, um, is impacted. And then we tend to reabsorb those kind of old, already broken down hormones, leading to this uh, buildup, essentially, if you will, of those hormones. So that's one thing is I'm always asking women like, okay, so are you having regular bowel movements, at least one a day that's complete? Um, and then the second issue is absorption. So the gut actually has an absorptive role and in particular with thyroid hormones, this is true. The GI tract interacts actively with thyroid hormones, especially, uh, T4 and T3 are absorbed to some extent in the gut and some of the conversion uh, of those hormones into the active forms happens there. Um, and so a lot of different factors can impact that absorption. Um, but then so, so for example, there's a connection between hypothyroidism and SIBO in the literature, and it's bi-directional, right? Because if we have something inflaming the gut that impacts our ability to 
do that conversion or absorb the hormones there, it's going to be problematic. But likewise, if we have low thyroid hormone, for example, um, thyroid hormone actively influences motility and rates of motility in the gut. And so we might then manifest more of a constipation or sluggish tendency. Um, so those interact with each other. And, but I think the biggest the biggest issue really comes down to the inflammation and then the microbiome and the ways those are related. So an inflamed gut might may or may not show up as digestive symptoms. You know, depending on the person, you can have silent inflammation, like I did, or relatively silent, where you're not struggling with nameable diarrhea or constipation all the time or pain or bloating, um, at least not necessarily in a regular way. Um, but that inflammation can impact almost every other aspect of your health. And in particular, our hormones are so sensitive. They're like the canaries in the coal mine when it comes to systemic inflammation. So an example of that is that known inflammatory conditions like obesity or inflammatory bowel disease are associated in studies with disrupted menstrual cycles and also with higher rates of sub or infertility. Um, so the connection is that when we have anything in the gut that is creating or enhancing leaky gut, basically that increased gut permeability um, that is resultant from inflammation, that allows toxins into the bloodstream and especially it allows um, you know, it, endotoxins, basically these things called LPS, which are fragments of the dead bacterial cell walls to pass from our intestines into the bloodstream and then circulate through the body. Um, and LPS is known to cause inflammation in pretty much any target tissue that it comes into contact with. And so, especially in the ovaries, they're very sensitive and the result is suppressed progesterone production. So that's actually one big reason why, and this is jumping ahead a little bit, but why leaky gut is associated with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, in that, you know, it's not the only mechanism by which we have lower progesterone, but it's also one that if you have it, doesn't help. Um, and, and addressing it can help change things, right? Um, so so um, the other way that inflammation can, can play a role is actually just within the gut. Um, so not just by virtue of LPS and leaky gut, but there's also this role of histamine, right? And histamine is a naturally occurring compound that's part of our immune system function. Plays a lot of roles in a healthy system and our immune, it works in our immune system to defend us kind of first line against certain invaders and to do many other things that actually acts as a neurotransmitter as well. Um, and it's one of those things that like all hormones, we want it to be not too high and not too low, just right, yeah? Um, and it has this very close tie histamine with our female reproductive hormones, so estrogen and progesterone. And one of the main places that we make histamine is in the gut. It's not the only place in the body that it's manufactured. Um, it's made in mast cells, which are located, you know, anywhere we have mucous membranes, basically. But there's a lot of histamine production in the gut. And so what happens is that um, if we have any issue in the gut that is provoking uh, an inflammatory or immune response, um, there tends to be some increase at, or, and this could be a lot of increase or a minor increase depending on the individual in our histamine output. And depending who are and on your detox pathways and the genetics you came in with and um, that influence other things like how we process and break down that histamine or how we produce it in the first place, you can wind up having an excess of that compound floating around. 
And what happens then is that we get symptoms related to excess histamine. And these can be, you know, anything from, oh, I get a stuffy nose and kind of stuffy ears after I eat to over hives and anaphylaxis, right? There's a whole spectrum. And then there's all these things related to kind of an IBS, you know, often it can look like cramping diarrhea. Um, there can be mental brain components like uh, emotional and brain fog, anxiety, ADD, all of those things, right? Um, and then, so the connection with our hormones is, so if you're a woman who has these kinds of tendencies to have higher histamine, either from your genetics or because you have, let's say some SIBO or you have uh, candida overgrowth or you have a lot of H. pylori or blastocystis hominis, which is a known uh, parasite, parasitic organism that um, promotes histamine. Um, then what happens is that you're going to notice those symptoms a lot more at certain periods during your menstrual cycle because of the fluctuation of these hormones, right? Like what makes us so complex as women is that all of these things that are happening are happening in the background context of throughout, you know, maybe a 28 day or 35 day cycle, whatever, if you have regular cycles, this fluctuation that's happening where no two days look exactly alike in, in the relativity between your hormones. So there's things that are happening over time that make us respond differently to these other background things that are going on. So you have high histamine levels, then as we approach PMS, what happens is that we have, you know, higher levels of um, both estrogen and progesterone in circulation. And right before our menstrual cycle, our progesterone naturally declines because it's time for us to get a bleed. And one of, that's one of the roles that the progesterone um, plays in that timing. So what happens is that progesterone acts to stabilize mast cells and it actually upregulates an enzyme called DAO, which is the main enzyme we use to break down histamine. And so therefore it can kind of reduce or temper the degree of our histamine related symptoms or histamine reactivity. Um, and as it declines, it's not doing that as much. And then simultaneously we have a slight, we become naturally estrogen dominant for a little bit during that time and estrogen stimulates our mast cells to release histamine. And it also downregulates the enzyme that the Dow enzyme that clears the histamine. So we have this kind of vicious cycle right there uh, where they're both promoting this symptom. We'll have a lot of people get more IBS symptoms in addition to other things like wicked PMS or menstrual migraines and such at that time. So there's those pieces. Um, but I love how much detail you, know, you went into because that was one of the first <laughs> things that I noticed years ago. I, like my symptoms would be cyclical. So right after my period and the week after that, I felt pretty good. My skin was pretty clear. But then at ovulation and then the week before my period, things would like just take a turn for the worst. And I would break out. I'd get really itchy. That was like a key sign. And it can be a sign of high mm -hmm. histamine levels. But I spent a long time wait I wasted a long time then um just reducing histamine rich foods and that really helped but I wasn't actually getting to the root of why I had this histamine issue in the first place and it, it did for me stem back to things like SIBO ultimately mold exposure mold illness so it's good when people recognize that histamine is a factor but always keep looking be that annoying child who always asks like why 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 until you get to like the root <laughs> problem and there's usually not just one thing is there there's usually like multiple imbalances coming together it's so true there's this saying that one of my Chinese medicine mentors used to say I think it's a saying like a proverb but um it's basically um you're entitled to more than one problem at the same time 
is Very like true. the name of the game with any natural medicine <laughs> approach. And that's true. Uh, yeah, I'm so glad that you kept asking those questions because that uh, such a good point is that, you know, when we identify these things, it can be really easy to say, well, the answer is I just go on this diet and it's going to fix it, right? Like how many times have you seen someone who's come to you for support because they, they've known they had SIBO and they knew that if they were on a low FODMAP diet help, but then they've been on a slow FODMAP increasingly restrictive diet for two, three, five years even, you know, and, and it's just heartbreaking because you're like, oh, we need, we need those, uh, all those fermentables. We need them for the rest of your good bacteria, you know? So, um, and likewise with low histamine diets, which can be lifesavers for people, right? I'm sure you got a lot of relief, but um, there's a lot of otherwise really healthy foods and nutrients that we are, you know, having to minimize um, at times or, or for a period of time when we embark on those diets. So it's good to keep asking that question and say, you know, what's below it. And gosh, mold is such a, um, I know we could talk for hours about that, but um, there's so many drivers of histamine in the gut. So I think that's, you know, some of those are like the, um, the H. pylori's and the blastocystis of the world and then SIBO and candida, both are, are huge at provoking histamine, actually anything fungal. You know, so those are always some that I'm looking for in people is, you know, and also looking at the genetics, right? Because it's always the interplay of, do you have genes that you came in with, right? And those are fixed. We can't change those, um, but we can influence them, right? With like certain nutrients or how we live our lifestyle. And then the interplay of that factor and the perfect storm of, oh, then I happen to get blastocystis hominis as well, right? Definitely. And that's usually... The tipping point yeah mm -hmm. and even for me yeah. like with the i've done my genetics as i'm sure you have as well looking into like why is some of these things happening to me and someone else has a whole set of different problems and probably for me with the history piece um it's something that i'm always going to have to be mindful of and maybe you with the insulin and the blood sugar piece probably can't eat a high mm -hmm. carb plant-based diet and feel great um, but yeah, it, it can be controlled and can be influenced by your gut health and LPS endotoxin levels and nutrient status. They can all influence the way that the enzymes work in the first place. So I'm glad that you made that point. Yeah. One of the infections that I want to go into in a little bit more detail is that H. pylori. So I've spoken about things like SIBO mm -hmm. um, previously and candida and yeast overgrowth, but with H. pylori, there's some doctors and even practitioners who believe that it's a completely commensal bacteria and it's it's fine because 50% of the population is believed to have it. And some of the symptoms that can be associated would be things like gastritis and stomach cancers and ulcers. So I'm guessing if people have those type of issues, the doctor would have picked up that H. pylori might be a factor. But what about issues with um, rosacea or fatigue or thyroid issues mm -hmm. like what what have mm -hmm. you seen to be mm -hmm. beneficial in terms of h pylori treatment yeah uh well h pylori is a huge and common one that causes symptoms and i think a lot of times um even when it's found doctors will some doctors will focus on but is it causing a localized problem right is it is there known GERD uh, reflux disease is there known ulcers are there is there overt gastritis right things like that um, and not necessarily think about the, the things, the way the body's impacted outside of the gut. Yeah. And so for sure, there are connectors uh, between H. pylori and rosacea, just as there are with, you know, SIBO and candida in the literature also are tied to rosacea. And so 
Well, here's the thing. Those three, actually, and Blastocystis hominis, those four, are like buddies. They're a tribe. They love to coexist. Um, and there's certain reasons for that. And, and you know, that has to do, there's other things like, like low hydrochloric acid status, which we can talk about. But um, so H. pylori is definitely one uh, organism that's connected to rosacea, to um, acne and eczema, and then general flushing, like increased histamine levels, right? So there's that, uh, his, all three, all four of those things can be associated with histamine as well. And they can all be associated with endotoxemia, right? That LPS, leaky gut, um, then affecting connective tissue. Um, so the thing about H. pylori that you mentioned that I want to touch on is that there's some people who don't feel that it's a problem. And that's really actually wise because it's not always a problem. And so this is where my, Ch my Chinese medicine training made sense of this very rapidly in that when we're looking at the microbiome, it's always a story of in who and when, right? Like, why will you run a stool panel and find someone with one of the nastiest parasites? Like, let's say something like Entamoeba histolytica that in some people can just absolutely cause the worst of the worst intractable gut problems. But then you can have someone else who has the same organism and they really have, you know, minor symptoms or maybe no symptoms and they're living with this organism. Like why? And that's why there's a lot of confusion. You know, when we look at things in studies, it's often in this very reductionist way, like it did or it didn't do this. And, um, you know, when we're looking at things from what I think of as like a holistic or Chinese medicine model, um, non-reductionist, it's like, okay, so this thing is occurring, but in the background context of what, like what's this person's constitution or in this instance, like what's happening in the rest of the microbiome. So I always think of the microbiome as this apartment building and you're the tenant, you're the um, landlord rather, and you have tenants, right? And so like, if you have mostly, like if 90% of your tenants pay their rent on time and generally keep the place pretty clean and take the trash out, like things are going to go pretty well, right? And it, that even if you have about 10% that are maybe don't chip in as much or they're not as friendly with the neighbors or they're a little bit late on the rent payment, the whole thing is still going to work out. You're not going to notice that so much. Whereas if you have, you know, a whole bunch of, of unruly, rowdy tenants and they're just, you know, partying and kicking holes in the wall, then that's going to be a problem for you. It's a big headache. Yeah. So likewise, when you have so H. pylori is an organism that 50% of the adults in the world will have at one point in their life, some amount of, and it doesn't always cause problems. Uh, a lot of that contextually is kind of who else is in your, your, your tenants, what's happening in your microbiome. Um, but also, and to what extent are they allowing overgrowth? Because that's the thing is you can have some H. pylori and it's not, it's not like a parasite where you're like, well, that just shouldn't be there there's a tipping point where it becomes overgrown and therefore is, you know, overexpressing itself and also could be potentially causing or creating what we call virulence factors and virulence factors simply make it more aggressive in terms of causing pathology. And those can be looked at on still panels. So what we're looking at is like, what level of this is present? Does it need to be killed back a little bit, like managed? And also, um, is it making virulence factors? Like, are there known things that it's doing that are pathogenic in terms of its actions? And then uh, what are the symptoms, right? Like if you have someone who has a little bit of H. pylori, but they've got wicked gastritis and reflux, like you're probably going to address that a little bit as a practitioner. And if you have someone with radically elevated numbers, then probably I'm going to assume it's causing some level of inflammation and at least moderate, mod modify it, you know, fight it back a bit. But if it's just present on a stool test and 
you know, it doesn't line up with what someone's experiencing and it doesn't have those virulence factors and they've got other things that are quite clearly a bigger problem, I'm probably going to table it, keep it in mind for later if we need to, but not really say, oh, well, it's always there. We just have to clear it. Yeah. And one of the, and that's how the I main ways that it causes issues um, is through the low stomach acid, isn't it? So it's lives, it thrives in an alkaline environment and our stomach should be very mm -hmm. acidic, like battery acid. So that's how something in your mm -hmm. stomach can affect your hormones and your hair growth and your brain function, because you could be eating a perfect diet, but not fully benefiting from the amino acids and the proteins and the zinc and calcium from your healthy foods. So could you talk about the impact of low stomach acid on things like hormones Absolutely. and fertility and menstrual cycles? Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it's important to know that like what you said, how H. pylori thrives in a low acid environment, it also creates that it, mm -hmm. it perpetuates it by breaking down the acid. So yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, we use our stomach acid, our hydrochloric acid, it's a critical component of healthy digestion, it's manufactured by the cells lining our stomach. And um, we use it, you know, the primary thing we think of is to digest proteins right, to break down proteins so that they can, uh, we can absorb the amino acids from them and use them for repairing the body and making brain chemicals and such. But it's also really important for regulating motility. It's also regulating the pH, so who permissive of which bacteria can live there, or which organisms can't. Um, but in particular, um, it plays a role in us being able to absorb critical B vitamins and things like zinc. And all those nutrients are so important for hormone balance and fertility, right? So um, in particular, let's think of B6 and B12 play huge roles in production of estrogens and, and progesterones and also in their um, clearance or, or processing and detoxification. Um, zinc as well plays a role with all of those. So those nutrients are huge. And sometimes I'll see someone who has low stomach acid and really the only uh, notable thing that they have is like a persistent low B12 or persistent anemia, right? And they can't recover from it until we really get a handle on the, the acid. Um, so those are the main ways that I think of the acid really impacting the hormones. Although the other thing is that, you know, um, it will also lead to, so if you think about it, you know, stomach acid is a, one of the main ways that we regulate the entire microbiome. Basically what pH exists in what part of the intestine, there's different microbiomes at different areas in the gut and down the intestine because of that shift in pH. And so having adequate stomach acid where you have this very acidic environment up at the you know stomach and small intestine creates a certain environment and then that changes as we go along and they're all interdependent, right? So in order for us to have this really strong, basically colon microbiome, large intestine, we have to have that stomach acid. And so that gut, the part of the microbiome that lives in our large intestine is one of the key regulators of circulating estrogen levels in the body. Um, and so that's why it's also referred to as the estrobilum. And so basically like the way estrogen works just to like zoom out for a minute is that we make it in the ovaries, also a little bit in our adrenal glands and in our fat tissue a little bit, but primarily the ovaries and our reproductive years. And then that gets circulated in our blood to our breasts, our brain, our bones, our uterus, and other places in the body to be used. And then once it's been utilized, it travels back in the blood to the liver where it's eventually broken down and excreted. And then in a healthy system, what happens is that those broken down estrogens are um, put into the bile where it's secreted from the gallbladder back into the intestinal tract, and then it exits the body with the stool. 
But if we have a low acid state and the bacteria that make up our microbiome have shifted, then what happens is that certain bacteria that regulate what happens to this estrogen do so by creating an enzyme called beta-glucuronidase. And that enzyme breaks down the estrogen into its free or biologically active form. And it can also break the estrogen off of the bile acids to which it's attached and allow it to be recirculated and reabsorbed. So essentially, if you have really high levels of beta-glucuronidase present as a result of an overgrowth of the wrong kinds of bacteria, that can lead to a state of estrogen dominance. So there's a big tie with low stomach acid and, and that as well. The stool test that we both use, I think, um, that test, that direct enzyme, doesn't it? The beta-glucuronidase. So if someone wanted to know for certain whether it's a factor for them, then that might be a good test to do. Yeah, I love that test for looking at that, actually. Absolutely. Do you love coffee, but have been told it's bad and needs to be avoided if you're struggling with hormone imbalances like acne, PMS, and period problems? Honestly, most coffee out there should be avoided because the majority are contaminated with things like mold and pesticides, which can drive inflammation and those feelings like anxiousness and jitteriness after drinking. But what if I told you there was a coffee option that tastes great, is organic and mold-free, and also provides healing properties from reishi mushroom spores. Enter Organo King Coffee, my latest obsession. I didn't drink it for years because it would always wreck my sleep and leave me feeling like an anxious mess. But King Coffee does the exact opposite. Don't worry, it's not one of those fake coffee alternatives made from herbs. And if you've tried other mushroom coffee brands out there, I promise this one actually tastes good and is way better and provides so many more health benefits. If you haven't already heard of the benefits of reishi mushroom or Ganoderma, then let me give you a quick overview. It's known as the king of medicinal mushroom family due to its superpowers such as supporting healthy immune balance and being an adrenal adaptogen. This means if your immune system's overactive due to autoimmunity, or suppressed because of things like chronic infections, and you're not really sure if your cortisol levels are high or low, the reishi can help to balance things out and it promotes homeostasis within the body. It's also antibacterial, antiviral, antifungal, anti-inflammatory, pretty much everything that we want from a product. Because of its potency, I'd recommend starting slowly if you're someone who's struggling with more complex chronic health issues or is sensitive. If you're thinking, why can't I just take a reishi mushroom supplement? Good question. Organo use a patented process to gently crack the inner and outer shell, offering 99% bioavailability of the reishi mushroom spores. I also explain this as being like the differences with probiotics, the regular lactobacillus, bifidobacterium options that we can all buy readily in health food shops have some benefit, but nowhere near as much as the spore-based probiotics that I use all the time with clients. Wanting to give Organo King Coffee a try for yourself? Visit vivanaturalhealth.myorganogold.com. This will all be spelled out and linked in the episode show notes and also my bio link on Instagram. I really hope you love it as much as I do, but now let's get back to the show. Are there any other functional yeah. lab tests? So like someone, let's say someone has like digestive and hormone issues. I'm guessing you have similar patients or clients to what I have. They all have a little bit of IBS, a little bit of skin issues, fatigue, anxiety, um, sleep issues and PMS. That's like a classic client. Um, where would you mm -hmm. start off and are there any other functional lab tests that you tend to run? 
Um, so I'm always going to run at least one stool panel. And, you know, as you mentioned, we both love the GI map by Diagnostic Solutions. Um, there's other stool panels that I'll sometimes run as a backup, just because in my experience, oftentimes you'll catch different things in different ways. Um, but that's my go-to. And then if someone's specifically struggling with symptoms of bloating um, and or diarrhea or constipation, and depending on their history, I'll often run a SIBO breath test. Um, so a lactulose test and ideally three hours for um, methane hydrogen, although more recently we have one that also includes hydrogen sulfide gas. So I like that one too. Um, and then, so, so the stool test is kind of like my bottom line, everybody gets it. And then um, I almost always run in a, a Dutch uh, hormone profile, the Dutch complete that has the HPA axis or adrenal hormones, and then the reproductive hormone snapshot as well. Um, and then depending on what else is going on for someone, uh, there's a lot of other ways I'll look at female hormones as well and thyroid hormones and such because um, the Dutch is amazing. And it's also one way of looking at hormones. And it, so it doesn't, there's no one tissue that can really give us the complete view of hormones. So sometimes I'll run some, you know, classic just serum lab testing on day three or day uh, seven days after ovulation, or I'll run, um, sometimes I've used the, um, I use month long cycling panels as well, either from uh, ZRT or um, diagnostics. I like too, because they include LH and FSH. Um, so I'll use different panels like that. And there's a number of other tests I'll use. We use a lot of the mycotox profile. Um, probably my hands down favorite when people are generally pretty well and are just looking to optimize their health in an ongoing way. Um, or also when I'm looking for, for, for causes of issues is the ion panel from Genova Diagnostics. So it's a combination of the um, organic acids profile and then a blood sample that can tell me about things like fatty acids and uh, omega balance and amino acids and minerals and metals and things. And so that panel just has so much information on it that can really help personalize treatment. And I love if that someone's one. Someone's had a stool test and maybe they have obvious yeast overgrowth symptoms, maybe they have thrush, maybe they have sugar cravings and brain fog, but the stool test comes back negative, then the organic acid is usually a better test, in my opinion. Do you agree to look at fungus and mm -hmm. yeast and those things? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I kind of think of like stool panels will tend to cause yeast overgrowth if it's pretty profound and in the colon but not necessarily, I mean, candida can colonize the entire GI tract, right? So if I tell people that if they're, if the predominant place where the candida is overgrowing tends to be in the small intestine, you might be more likely to catch it in a, um, in the organic acids. Yeah. And I know most women and probably every, every episode that I do, I talk about the role of stress, mentally, emotional stress mainly, but we know that stress is like physical, chemical, structural also, but I think people know that stress is a problem, but why physiologically mm -hmm. does cortisol mm -hmm, affect things mm -hmm. like our menstrual cycles and our gut health? Absolutely. Oh gosh. Well, okay. So, I mean, the first thing I want to say about this is just that what I tell people is that, you know, stress is ubiquitous, right? There's, there's stressors in life and those are things that are outside of our control. It's having a poor stress response. That's the problem. So it's what we do, how we perceive the stress and what we do with it. The reason that's important is that it's entirely within our control to learn strategies and tools to help us adapt to some extent to the things that are gonna come our way in life that are outside of our control. And that's really the best medicine. Um, 
rather than all, you know, you can also use protocols and whatnot, but I like to empower people with understanding that this is something that to whatever extent we're willing to do the work, we can learn how to shift our body's response and help ourselves. Um, so yeah, I mean, essentially the role of stress is that um, there's a whole lot when it comes to the gut and when it comes to hormones, but if the, the simplest way to explain it is that when our body um, has altered cortisol rhythms or cortisol levels because of the brain's perception of stress, right? So um, the adrenal glands are basically just the messenger. They, they kind of do the work that the brain tells them to do. So it's not really an adrenal problem. It's a brain response thing when we have, say, cortisol that's real high or cortisol that's gotten really low. And in either of those scenarios, the body's perceiving that, that the environment you're in is one that is stressful and therefore probably harmful. And what it does is, you know, brilliantly, the design team made us so that because, you know, if you think for the majority of our lives, we were living pretty primally, like more hunter gatherer style um, for our existence, most of our existence on the planet. So what happens is that our, our system was designed to basically say, you know, we're safe or we're not safe, like kind of pretty simply. Um, and so most of the time lives were pretty boring. Like we were, you know, maybe hunting and gathering food. We were um, you know, building and maintaining our living situations, our homes, we were maybe gardening, we were doing things with community, um, you know, just kind of everyday stuff. And so um, we didn't have the stressors were like, oh, now that animal's chasing me, or oh, my gosh, there's no food, there's a famine, things like that, or a warring neighboring tribe or something like that, but not like, oh, my email inbox is dinging all day long or my, you know, my social media and my this and my that and the deadline they were actually for work like real life-threatening stresses. And they were like once in a exactly. while, whereas now it's like chronic, low-grade. They're not going to kill us the majority of the time, but they're just nonstop. Precisely. But our brain doesn't really know the difference, but, you know, between the ones that are going to kill us and the ones that aren't. Not really, hormonally speaking. So, it elicits the same response. And then um, what happens is that then it does this brilliant thing of prioritizing the systems that are gonna save us and downregulating the systems that are a little bit more expendable in terms of saving us today, right? Those systems, if they're not working, might lead us to have chronic disease, which is kind of how we got where we are now. But um, what I mean by that is that some of the most notable things is that there is a direct suppression of our immune system um, most notably, we'll see this as low secretory IgA on stool panels or even saliva panels, you can see it. Um, and that's a type of immunity that lives on the mucous membrane. And it's actually uh, quantifiably the, the one that's predominant in the gut, which is why when you have chronic stress, you're vulnerable, your defenses are down in your gut, and you're going to be more apt to pick up those opportunistic pathogens or to um, it'll contribute to allowing things like certain bacteria or fungus to overgrow in the gut, all of those things, and makes it harder to repair and heal the damaged tissue. Yeah. So um, that's one of the ways that it impacts the gut. There's also, we just simply start to not turn over cells as rapidly, like heal and repair tissue. And so then you get this, you can get leaky gut just from stress, basically, you know, without any other precipitating factor that's possible, just by virtue of the fact that your gut's not healing itself. Um, and then it plays a similar role with hormone balance. And most notably, I mean, this can show up all over the place in different, different ways, thyroid and um, insulin and all kinds of things. But with reproductive hormones, basically our body, um, our, our brain tends to think of progesterone, even though it has so many roles in the body, bone health and brain health and mood and things 
other things like this, but it kind of thinks of it as your hormone that says you can or can't get pregnant. And so what happens is that when your when your brain basically thinks you're in a threatening environment, it just brilliantly says, Hey, probably not a good time for you to have a kid, right? That's not going to, the kid's not likely to survive. It's certainly not going to help you to have a toddler in tow while you're, you know, trying to escape this threatening situation. So it downregulates your progesterone first and foremost and other hormones as well, but that's the biggest impact. And that's why we'll see this, you know, kind of um, epidemic of estrogen dominance. That's one main reason. It's not the only reason, but it's a big one, right? Is that the world as we've designed it today is full of these chronic stressors and our body doesn't know the difference between that and the tiger that's about to bite us. And so we wind up with lower progesterone relative to our abundant estrogen and all the symptoms that that creates, the PMSs and the fertility challenges and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most hormone imbalances are due to a lack of progesterone in compared to estrogen. And that's like one of the number one questions that I get, probably you do, like, how do I boost my progesterone levels? Like, what supplements can I take? And my answer is always like, you need to have your body make it on its own should be able to make it on its own for most people. And there's obviously something getting in the way and it's likely stress from all different angles. And that's like managed stress is easier said than done. But I like what you said, just becoming more like resilient against stress and not expecting to live a completely stress-free life. But it's just about mm-hmm. how you take care of yourself and maybe your mindset and perspective on like what stress actually is. That does make quite a difference, I think. Yeah. And all those practices and all the things we hear about, you know, the different forms of meditation and hypnosis and therapy and EMDRs and all that are, are so, so important too. So I'm not trying to trivialize those things, but I think that two of the biggest things, like if I look at the source of our stress as adults and young adults too, but um, are, you know, one thing is community and the other thing is um, feeling our emotions all the way through. So like, if you ever hung out, like I'm hanging out a lot right now with my 19 month old, right? She has absolutely no problem feeling her emotions in the moment. And they're like clouds passing. Like she feels them fully. She expresses them fully. And then 30 seconds later, we're like on to the net. We're building a fort with her stuffies, you know? So like it's never happened or, you know, and and like that. Um, And I think that there's just ways that for practicality sake as adults, we usually be conditioned, conditioned not to do that. And we put a damper on feeling things all the way through. And then I think they get stuck. So that's kind of one of the main themes I see. Um, and then the other one is community and isolation, which I think this year more than ever, we're all to some extent feeling the effects of that. Right. And that's very real. It's very real. It creates symptoms. And, um, I bringing it home personally, I think about, um, having just gone through first my postpartum period, my immediate postpartum period after having my baby and then moving into this like pandemic kind of thing where we're all distancing, it's been a very long time where, and I'm a very community driven person. Um, you know, I'm a dancer and I spend a lot of time with my girlfriends doing things around that and with, you know, broader community around that. And I'm really feeling the absence of that in my life. Um, we connect in other ways and we still manage to kind of like do those things virtually. Um, but, you know, um, I had this thought a while back, which is that like, you know, so much of postpartum depression and anxiety would I imagine if we were still living really tribally be at least like lessened because you would be, you know, surrounded, surrounded by in that sense, like all these women who had done it all before you and they'd seen it all 
and experienced it all. And so there wouldn't be so much of that. There's this innate thing that happens when you're a mother, at least where you're going, oh my gosh, like, you know, in the first like month or two, is this going to kill them? Is that going to kill them? Is this going to happen? And we're programmed for the baby's survival to do that. But when you have people there who have all those answers and can say, don't worry, it's okay. Like just the impact of that on our system are less. And so I just think about that community and how important it is for um, managing our stress. Agreed. And I've always thought I'm like the biggest introvert ever. So at the start of lockdown, I was like, oh, this is going to be fine. Like I don't need to go and socialize. And it's actually made me realize even as an introvert, everyone needs human connection to be happy Mm -hmm. and healthy. Because they say like even Mm -hmm. um, social isolation and loneliness is probably even worse or just as harmful to your health as smoking a pack of cigarettes Mm -hmm. every day. So if you're someone who Mm -hmm. is quote doing all the right things like eating this perfect diet but you aren't in like good relationships so you don't have a community that could be what's holding you back and I know that that's a big aspect of eastern medicine is not just looking at the physical it's looking at the emotional energetic sides as well so I'd love to know your your thoughts on eastern medicine and how they view both hormonal and digestive issues obviously there's different um things within that but what's just your general overview what would you focus on yeah um so this could be like a for your master's degree okay. but the simple version <laughs> question <laughs> this is the simple ver- but it's a fantastic question and I'm always thinking about it as well so a lot of things in Chinese medicine that fall under the realm of digestion or fall under the realm of, of what we think of as hormones um we call related to so, so there's different organ systems in Chinese medicine and they largely correlate to the Western organs, right? Like liver is actually talking about liver. Um, lungs are talking about lungs, but there's one we call spleen and spleen is not really spleen. So when we think about the organs in Chinese medicine, just real briefly, it's more about, they're defined more by their function than by like the um, solid mass we call the organ, although there also is that. Um, but so we t- when we think about spleen, spleen both encompasses this idea of like the strength of our digestion, like the warmth uh, and fire of the, our capacity to extract usable nutrients and energy from the food we eat. And it also incorporates this idea of how do we um, nourish and support tissue, meaning how do we like build blood, physical blood, and how rich is that blood? And then like, how do we prevent prolapse and like lift and hold things? And so it's intimately involved in like the reproductive cycle, like parts of building the blood that then we say nourish, like your uterine lining are involved, spleen, you have to have a strong spleen. And spleen would be involved in things like um, lifting and holding, uh, like say how we have an elevation of temperature in the luteal phase after ovulation or our lining is held up so that a baby, uh, an embryo could implant and we can carry a baby and holding the baby the whole time, like requires the strength of spleen. Right. And so there's this, in, there's this inherent understanding that the capacity of your body to digest and assimilate nutrients from food is inextricably linked to your ability to nourish your hormone function. Um, that's just one tiny little example of that. But for example, when we talk about, there's also this idea that there's this, um, the organs don't exist in isolation. So um, it's never just the spleen. If there's a problem with spleen, there's a problem because of, let's say like one example would be, there's a syndrome where we talk about the liver um, overacting or attacking the spleen. 
And what that means is con- that, that usually looks like what we call IBS in Western speak. Um, it's like cramping and maybe diarrhea or gassy bloating, like this kind of like fight going on, yeah? And the liver in Chinese medicine does many, many things um, and definitely some of them hormonal. But one of the things we talk about the liver being is um, they say it's like um, the general in charge of planning and direction. And like when the general is happy, everything goes smoothly. And when it's unhappy, like there's stagnation. And, and a lot of that is tied to these emotions like frustration, anger, especially repressed anger, um, irritability, like those kinds of things are characteristic of liver we think of in a simple way. And so when there's a lot of that, when we say there's liver chi stagnation is what we say, or liver energy stagnation, there's stuckness there for various reasons. That is more likely, especially if your spleen is weak, or if your digestive strength is a little vulnerable to get attacked, and therefore create this IBS, right? So there's this way where that was a little bit roundabout, but basically there's this interplay between how those organs both support each other and interact and a balance between them and then there's the inherent strength or weakness of the organ system. And all of those are tied into different emotional qualities. Um, spleen, the characteristic of spleen when it's out of balance would be like worry, M- mulling things over and over and over, um, worry um, and kind of like um, being consumed by overthinking. Um, we, all, we call uh, uh, like student syndrome is like when people are immersed in, ha- in long periods of hard study that it can impact their digestion. Right. So things like that. Um, and then all those things go back to building that blood and that potential to basically have strong hormone balance and strong reproductive function. Very so, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, we could go, I mean, <laughs> there's obviously clearly that was like, you know, it took a while to explain some of those concepts are a little bit intro into a huge foreign. subject. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's so much overlap with just the ways that we look at things with functional medicine and nutrition as well. Yeah, I've decided when the pandemic is over, I'm moving to California and studying this. <laughs> it sounds like my... Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, sounds amazing. I love how everything oh, do is interconnected. I already knew that, but I'm really fascinated with Chinese medicine. So I, well, I knew you were coming on. I have to pick your brains on that subject. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, the other thing I would say about it is just there's like the Chinese medicine understanding, like worldview of the body, but like literally just acupuncture as a tool. I mean, so you and I both work virtually, right? Like I've had a um, entirely virtually clinic, virtual clinic since around 2012 or 13. Um, And I love working with people that way. And I still get to like exercise those Chinese medicine parts of my brain. But one of the things I don't do as much of nowadays is acupuncture and just straight up acupuncture is just such an amazing, amazing tool that I think like if every one of my functional medicine patients can get acupuncture locally, you know, where they live, it just makes everything better. You know, it's, it's so much better because, um, you know, acupuncture is great in its own uh, right for helping to regulate hormones, especially when done like every week during a cycle to help regulate what's happening in the body at that part of the cycle um, for digestion and motility. You know, like we talk about um, vagus nerve uh, impact and SIBO and all those ways that we, um, the migrating motor complex and, um, you know, so acupuncture with or without the TENS units, the ESTEM can help regulate that motility and um, help re-stimulate the vagus nerve to help uh, regulate 
bowel movement and digestion and relieve symptoms. Um, and that's all done, you know, obviously when you're, there's no like this treatment is for this. It's kind of, it's done um, relative to your personalized need by the practitioner who's working with you. And just, I love that about it. It's, it's so useful. Yeah, it really is an amazing tool. And I actually started off when I qualified in nutrition alongside an acupuncturist near to where I lived. And he was a specialist in fertility acupuncture. And um, so for those going through IVF, so I would do the nutrition side of things for some of them, he would do the physical work, and people were getting amazing results. But there were literally some people there who would just do that acupuncture, who were still eating McDonald's, still drinking like a ton of alcohol, not to promote that um, side of things, but they were still getting like better periods and falling pregnant. So it really does work. But if you can do both together, if you can <laughs> optimize the diet and do the physical stuff, then that's where the results really, really show. You know, I hate telling people that, but it is kind of true because I mean, similar, I had a similar experience. I, um, before I was in private practice, I also worked in IVF clinics doing, you know, precisely that, the acupuncture. And one of the reasons I left was because um, I really wanted to do the functional medicine part. And because I was working inside the actual clinic, they didn't really want to, you know, branch into that as much. So I really wanted to work with people in the preconception phase, you know, and so that's also one of my, that's kind of my biggest love is when people come to me and like, yeah, we need to straighten out the stuff in their gut and, and the hormones and their symptoms and the acne and the um, migraines and the whatnot. But ultimately they're like, but I actually, you know, really want to get pregnant in a year or, you know, however like that. I love working on, on that. It's so much fun. So, so rewarding, yeah. right? Yeah. And what you do now, like if obviously we want to improve like your current symptoms, but it all influences in the future as well, like your experience during menopause, your disease risk in the future. So it really does pay mm -hmm. off and it's an investment into your future health. Absolutely. And I always end up my interviews with a few questions for you personally. So just a few fun questions and then you can tell everyone where they can find you. So the first one is what's something that you do daily to stay in hormonal harmony? <laughs> Sleep. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I, um, and, and this is kind of funny, because obviously, I have a, a young child, but she's actually a pretty good sleeper, you know, um, I'm lucky at this point that she mostly sleeps through the night. So um, sleep was, is the one thing that I hold fast to, like, there were times when I was existing on like some smoothies and some, you know, maybe like one real solid meal a day, I'm not gonna lie, you know, when I was uh, early on in motherhood, and just trying to get through yeah. the day. But the thing that I always did was take all the opportunities to sleep. Great. Yeah, it's my one fear of motherhood, not being able to sleep. I need like a good nine, 10 hours every night. So hopefully I have an amazing <laughs> child who sleeps through as well. <laughs> Second question is, what's your go-to breakfast? Mm, gosh, you know, um, okay. Well, I do really well with actually quite a sizable breakfast. Um, I, I can do intermittent fasting now that I'm in better hormone balance and that feels great too, but I actually really thrive on having like almost my biggest meal will be breakfast. So like I'll eat, um, you know, depending on if time allows, I'll have like a couple of pasture raised eggs. Um, I really like them poached or soft boiled, but you know, scrambled, whatever. Um, I'll have, um, sometimes I'll add to that, like some um, organic um, chicken breakfast sausages to that. Um, my daughter loves those. So that's an easy go-to. 
we love this uh, keto bread that's called base culture. It toasts really well. And it's just like a, it's, you know, a, kind of like an almond flour and coconut flour mixed base thing um, that's very low carb. And so I'll have a piece of that with either some like grass fed butter or some um, like almond butter or something on it. And um, then sometimes I'll usually have some kind of like greens powder and water with like some lemon and, and some stuff like that alongside of that. Yeah, yeah, I'm a huge breakfast person as well. And they've actually done studied studies with PCOS. So maybe that's why we both gravitate to having like bigger breakfast and the bulk of our calories. They've done studies where people have the biggest meal, like breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, dinner like a pauper, mm -hmm. like the old saying. Um, and they had like a massive reduction in insulin and testosterone and things like that. So yeah, definitely listen to your body. And if that works for you, amazing. Mm -hmm. What's one supplement or food or herb that you couldn't live without? Mm, one. I have to pick one. Yes. Um, this is always a tricky one for all the practitioners. <laughs> okay. This is so hard for me. This is like, you know, I'm like Jewish from the East Coast. So it's kind of like talking without waving my hands around okay. <laughs> um, is almost impossible. <laughs> Picking one is almost impossible. Um, so I'm going to go with magnesium mm -hmm. just because there's been other things that maybe I was more heavily dependent on at different points in my life. But if I would say one thing, I think that our food stores are incredibly depleted of, of adequate magnesium stores. So it's almost impossible to get magnesium from even like eating a really great diet. And I've always felt better with supplemental magnesium for so many reasons, sleep, digestion, hormone balance, mood and brain. Um, so yeah. That is my, that's that's the top the answer that I tend to get. So I'm with you on that one. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's an important one. It is. Mm. And it's good for so many things. It's like the biggest bang for your book with something like magnesium. Absolutely. Do you have a book recommendation? either on the subject of Chinese medicine, hormones, gut health? Oh, gosh, yeah, that's another tough one. There's so many good ones. Um, well, Chinese medicine, I think um, the classic one is the web that has no weaver. That's like a really great overview for anyone who's either thinking of becoming a student of Chinese medicine or even just lay people who are like, what is this? What was she talking about? Liver, spleen, blood, chi? I don't even know what that means. Um, that's a really beautiful book by Ted Kapchuk, I believe. And it's just been around forever. And it's just such a great one. Um, so I love that book. Very last question, okay, Brie, is where can people find more from you online? And if they're interested in working with you or checking out your website, where can they find you? All right. Well, my website is my full name, which is BrieWeiselman.com. And um, then my where I hang out a lot is on Instagram right now. That's kind of my main social platform. So that's where you can kind of find out what I'm up to and also just the thoughts I'm having about all these tidbits and things like we've discussed is on Instagram. And the profile is also at Brie Weifelman. Amazing. This has been so fun. Thank you so much. It's always good to connect with like-minded practitioners, especially those specializing in hormones and gut health like myself. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this has been wonderful. Thanks, Brie. <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and you would love a free copy of my hormone-friendly recipes guide, please leave me a rating and review and I will email you a copy as a thank you gift. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review and send it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. This guide contains delicious gluten, dairy, grain and refined sugar-free recipes and all the meals contain specific hormone superfoods. Don't worry, there are no boring salad recipes included. 
Come and say hi over on Instagram at Viva Natural Health as I share a ton of free content every day and you can get to know more about me and how I stay hormonally healthy. If you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk for my blog and many free guides which cover everything from clearing acne to gut health and hair loss. If you're ready to identify and address the root causes of your hormonal issues, whether that's acne, PMS, PCOS, hair loss or problematic periods, take that first step today and apply for an enrolment call on my website. We'll use this call to discuss the steps that you need to take in order to achieve hormonal harmony and how I could help you get there. See you back here next week for another episode.